The outfit looked terrible, and I knew just how they felt. Exhausted, sleepy, hungry, worn down, and sick. Worse, they didn't feel lucky anymore. They'd lost the soldier's bulletproof ego, that feeling that said, others may get hit, but I never. I knew how they felt because I felt the same way. I knew that the next time I stuck my head out in the open, I'd catch a bullet in the teeth. Not even the clowns were wisecracking anymore. Sergeant William Triplett, 140th Infantry Regiment, 35th Division, AEF, Exermont, Meurs-Argonne, September 29th, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 58, Meurs-Argonne, Breakdown. Let's start the episode with a shout out to our newest patrons on Patreon, listeners Jerry and Lee. As supporters of the podcast on Patreon, Jerry and Lee will have early access to all new episodes, as well as operations maps, transcripts, and bibliographies for those episodes. They will also have other perks, such as being able to submit a question that I'll research and answer to the best of my ability. Patrons also have the possibility of naming a battle they'd like to hear covered on the show. If this sounds interesting to you, check us out on www.patreon.com backslash Battles of the First World War podcast. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as a dollar per episode, and patrons are only charged when a new episode is released. At a dollar per episode, that's less than your typical candy bar these days. Of course, this is all voluntary, and it is all greatly appreciated. While we're here, if Patreon is not a possibility, but you would still like to help the podcast financially, you can donate through PayPal. On the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, there is a PayPal button that allows you to make a donation of your choice to the podcast. And, of course, if neither Patreon nor PayPal are an option for you at this time, you can still very much support the battles of the First World War podcast by giving it a starred or written review on iTunes. Reviews help the podcast come into the beam of the iTunes searchlight more and more, and that helps grow our community. Okay, folks, I would also like to add that we are well over 310 reviews on iTunes now, and I've got to tell you all that I walk taller and prouder. I feel like we've arrived in our little corner of the internet that lives and breathes all things First World War. We're here, folks. We're on the stage, posing for a group photograph, second row standing, 
maybe second from left. So thank you so much. Okay, this episode, we are going east of the 28th Pennsylvania Division to the 3rd Frontline Division in the AEF 1st Corps, the 35th Santa Fe Division. As we covered back in episode 52, the 35th Division was the right flank of the 1st Corps, and its job on the 26th of September was to seize the Butte du Vauquois and assist the 28th Division in pushing up the River Air Valley. The 26th had seen the soldiers of the 35th Division advance some three miles to Hill 202, well north of the village of Shepi, but at the expense of the 137th and 138th Infantry Regiments. Both point regiments had come apart under the strain of poor leadership and heavy combat. Lieutenant Colonel Ristine of the 139th Infantry had decided to leapfrog the dissolving 137th, and get his better organized doughboys into the fight. His men had ended their day on Hill 202, where Ristine worked on separating his men from 137th Infantry troopers who had followed him, likely because he was the only officer available. The division's first day in combat can be seen as a partial success, even with all of the chaos. As historian Robert Farrell wrote in his book, Collapse at Meurs-Argonne, The Failure of the Missouri-Kansas Division, quote, The 35th began to come apart, although its unraveling was not apparent to the division's brave men. The story is a subtle one, in which an error in judgment at Army headquarters and a refusal to calculate its possibilities at Corps and Division headquarters led to increasing problems in the field. No single error, but an accumulation, lay behind all this. Unquote. The 27th of September opened up as a new day, and the gray sunlight of another rainy day put in plain sight the division's problems. On the front line, two regiments were nearing a state of collapse. Doughboys up on the front, soaked and shivering, were running low on rations. Leadership, even accounting for the horrible communications conditions of the era, was severely lacking. Major General Traub, the division commander, was trying to command from the ground but was nowhere to be seen. The division's artillery was stuck in the massive AEF traffic jam behind the front and was thus unavailable. The 35th Division's objective for the 27th was a line three miles north of the village of Fleville, which, straight-line distance by the D-946 roads, is some 15 kilometers away from where the division currently sat. Judging by the 35th's and every other division's performance on the 26th, Fleville was an impossible attack order. General Pershing issued an order for attacks to begin at 0530, which the 35th Division Chief of Staff ignored and reset for three hours later. Major General Traub would have none of it. Pershing had said 0530, and 0530 it must be. Major General Traub would come back to this defense over the next few days, hiding behind Pershing's orders as if that would absolve him 
of any leadership responsibility. The first attack was to be a disaster for the men of the 35th. Regardless of Trobes and Pershing's orders, the earliest regiment to attack was the 140th Infantry, led by Lieutenant Colonel Channing Delaplane. The 140th's men passed through the ranks of the disorganized 138th, and from Hill 218, north of Sheppey, the regiment went on the attack at 0630. There was no artillery support, so officers simply led their men from the front and charged toward the enemy. Sergeant William Triplett, whose quote opened the episode, was an 18-year-old platoon sergeant leading 2nd Platoon Delta Company in the 140th. He had been chosen for the job of platoon sergeant because he took well to soldiering, and in his own words, quote, The fact that I stood six feet tall at 160 pounds and had a hog-calling voice certainly helped, unquote. His memoir, titled A Youth in the Murs Argonne, and edited by Robert Farrell, records those days at the end of September 1918 when Triplett saw combat. One of those days was the 27th. And it's a good book. A Youth in the Murs Argonne, really entertaining despite the heavy subject. Triplett recalled the attack plan, which was develop the new German positions, being explained as follows. It's very simple. We just go ahead as usual until we get shot at real heavy. Then we'll know where the Jerry's are. The young sergeant took his platoon and fell in with the second assault wave. And the first wave had pushed out a kilometer before Germans of the Prussian 5th Guards began reaching out to them with long-range machine gun fire. The 5th Guards were replacing the 2nd Prussians, a unit that had been mauled by the American attacks. Quote, Another thousand or so yards, and it began to get serious. The scouts were moving down the forward slope of a ridge. The first platoon was well over the crest, and Corporal Kennedy's section was right on the skyline when several more Maxims started chattering at closer range, and several volleys of 77-millimeter shell combed the crest. The first platoon had halted and were disappearing into holes, so we flattened too. Three out of four of the scouts trotted, crawled, or limped back through us, having done their part of the job. It looked like we had developed them as required. Unquote. The 140th Infantry went to ground as the Germans unleashed heavy machine gun and artillery fire on the doughboys. The attack stalled there. Much of the fire was coming from the old and ruler-straight Roman road that ran northeast from the village of Charpentrie to Epinonville, and on to romagne sous montfaucon currently well behind enemy lines. Here the Germans sat on a tree-lined ridge road where a machine gun nest had been dug in under every third tree. There were heavy casualties in the assaulting lines. On the division's left front, the 139th Infantry under Lieutenant Colonel Karl Rustin attacked at 9 a.m., with two battalions up front. The 139th pushed off heading generally north-northwest towards Charpentry, which sits at the bottom of a gently sloping ridge. Ristine and his men came under heavy fire from the enemy's machine guns and the enemy's planes, which flew boldly despite the bad weather 
and came in low to strafe the doughboys with their machine guns. A Private Joe Rizzi, like many others, felt that one of those planes was coming directly for him. Rizzi's account comes to us from Dr. Ed Langle's book, To Conquer Hell, which, if I haven't told you that you should buy it, here I am telling you, you should buy it. Quote, I want to say that the plane scared me more than I was ever scared in my life. I really thought he was firing directly at me, and I could almost see his features when he was coming at us. I was trying to force myself into my foxhole and cover myself with my equipment, all the while shaking my fist at him and shouting, You, you son of a bitch, come down and just let me get one poke at you. I was scared, and believe me, there must have been hundreds like me. Unquote. The 139th advance also stalled and made hardly any gains in ground for all the dead and wounded they left on the fields. In the early afternoon, a platoon of FT-17 Renault baby tanks came up to Triplets Ridge to engage the enemy. The tanks attracted a lot of enemy fire, which Triplet and his doughboys had to desperately avoid as bullets pinged off the tank's armor. Triplet also had to avoid the tanks, as they were everywhere where he and his men were, and no one wanted to die by being run over by his own side's firepower. When the tankers went down the slope and saw they couldn't cross the creek up ahead, they came back and shot off all their ammunition before pulling back towards the rear. In the evening, another major attack kicked off, with the 140th leading the charge towards the Charpentry-Romagne-Roman road. They had to attack down the slope of Hill 218 and then up the next slope towards the Roman road. Heavy machine gun fire lashed out at them almost as soon as the American whistles blew. Sergeant Triplett noted a strange habit he and his men were engaging in as they advanced. Quote, It's odd how a man under fire will tilt his head forward and lean into his helmet like it was an umbrella in a hard rainstorm. It would take four helmet thicknesses to bounce a bullet. I noticed that they were all leaning into the storm. Foolish. And then I caught myself doing it too. It felt safer, peering from under the brim. Stupid. Unquote. The doughboys of the 140th made it down and up the ridge to where the Germans were located cutting through or stepping on belts of newer barbed wire that posed a deadly obstacle. Coming up on the ridge, the doughboy saw that the Germans had installed wood and tree brush panels amongst the trees to create camouflage screens. Sergeant Triplett and his men came up to the panels and began to tear away at them furiously. Some men hung back to throw grenades at the Germans on the other side. Once a gap was forced, the doughboys pushed through and went on a rampage. A man seems to get dumbstruck and foggy brain during a brawl like that, Triplett wrote in his memoir. All this cogitating, of course, took just seconds, and I began noticing what was going on. A mob of Americans was chasing a scattering of fast jerrys towards some woods about a kilometer to the northwest. Another gang was running after a clot of Germans who were galloping up the lane toward the farm we'd seen earlier to our right front. I took off after this lot at high speed. They were bound to run into big trouble in that direction. 
Most of them were from D Company, but were so wild-eyed that they were hard to stop. The damn fools thought that they were on the way to Berlin and didn't want to lose the chance to bayonet a few Prussians in the back. Never occurred to a man of them to stop, take a good position, and shoot instead. Berserk! As Triplett and his men slaughtered their way across the ridge, another group from the 140th pushed west and down the sloping ground to sweep into Charpentry. The men of the 139th Infantry on the division's left front pushed up Buanta Creek under heavy fire. With Charpentry secured by their sister regiment, Lieutenant Colonel Ristine and his doughboys ran past and on into the village of Bolny to the northwest of Charpentry. With his men dropping left and right, Ristine pushed his battalion until they were themselves on a ridge north of Balny. With these positions secured, the 140th and the 139th dug in for the evening. The 139th Regiment was still heavily intermixed with men of the broken 137th, which caused chaos in command and control. The 140th was keeping it together for the time being. Next morning, the troops of the 35th faced the same conditions. The weather was autumn cold, and it was raining again. Hunger was gnawing at the wet doughboys' bellies, but it was even more acute this time. There were no rations to be had. Platoons were sending out scavenging parties whenever possible to rifle through the pockets and rucksacks of both dead Germans and Americans for anything edible. The 139th continued to hold Balni Ridge through the night, but the regiment's surviving officers were having a hell of a time figuring out which men were theirs and which belonged to the 137th. This mattered because they would have needed to identify leaders from either regiment who would follow their orders. They could use any man who wanted to fight. They just needed them to listen and to do as they were told. The 140th held the ridge northeast of Charpentry, while behind it, the 138th Regiment remained out of the fight and in a state of collapse. Throughout the night, the 139th and the 140th had come online to form something like a unified frontline trace. An unfortunate error would now leave the 139th leaderless for the next day and a half. West of Bois de Montrebeau, Lieutenant Colonel Ristine took a wrong turn down a trail and soon found himself far from his unit and behind German lines. Ristine now went into evasion mode and spent the next 36 hours staying out of sight of the enemy. He popped up in the 112th Infantry Sector on the 29th, wearing a German helmet and trench coat. Remember that the 112th belonged to the 28th Division to the left. He was lucky he wasn't shot as a spy, rumors and stories of whom had every soldier on edge. Another morning, another attack order for 0530. Pershing's tactical rigidity was a double-edged sword, but we have to keep in mind that in order to close with and destroy the enemy, the AEF would have to keep attacking. General Pershing would have to keep sending his men forward to attack and destroy the German enemy. 
and help bring this long war to a close. He no doubt knew that with his attack orders he was sentencing many of the young men under his command to death or dismemberment. But it had to be done. The objective on the 28th was the Bois de Montrebeau, one mile north of the current front line. The wood sits on top of a hill. Division issued the attack order for the wood to be taken, but no guidance on how to do so. Major General Trowell was out somewhere to the rear and was thus nowhere to be found. Trowell had also scattered his staff so that he could be in complete compliance with Pershing's order to get all commanders out on the ground. Traub's leadership style here really had to be questioned. He was trying to be everywhere and was thus nowhere. Dr. Langle notes in To Conquer Hell that Traub, quote, took little interest in coordination and planning, preferring to wander along the lines, brandishing his swagger stick and shouting fiery, irrelevant commands, unquote. He was taking little ownership of the performance of his division, many of whose commanders he had replaced just days before the great battle began. Some of these commanders were now breaking down on the battlefield, unable to bear the heavy strain of ongoing combat operations. Consequently, the disorganized regiments of his command, save the 140th, had no staff leadership available to them to help them Brigade and regimental commanders simply began working together and making decisions on their own, leading the battle from a very local level. On a positive note, the divisional artillery had made it through the brutal traffic jams to the rear, and the guns were set up to support the morning's attack. During the night, the German army, under General Max von Galwitz's orders, rushed in another division into the sector, the German 52nd. To be clear, though, these divisions were nowhere near full strength, with many divisions running at the size of regiments, about 3,000 men or so. The attack got underway in the rain, and even with the support of the staggering and stumbling Renault tanks, the men of the 140th Infantry were driven back under a storm of machine gun fire, the Germans launched a counterattack against the 139th Regiment, which the remaining officers and NCOs there successfully parried. Once the smoke had cleared, junior leaders, lieutenants, and captains, and NCOs put together groups of doughboys who attacked Bois de Montrebeau wildly but resolutely. German positions inside the thick woods were eliminated one by one under showers of rifle and shell-shot fire. The burp of the 37mm Pateau guns was also heard in the battle for the woods. Combat was brutish, with exhausted doughboys gunning down exhausted Germans whenever and wherever they were found, and in turn being gunned down themselves by the next team of enemy gunners up the trail. The wood was taken late in the day, and a hasty line established along its northern edge. Command and control were becoming increasingly tenuous as the units were intermingled. Wounded men were left where they lay, and those able to walk began to trickle back to the rear as best as they could. Stragglers and deserters took these opportunities to disappear towards the rear as well. 
35th Division was now stretched to the limit with no real reserves to speak of. Yet the next morning, September 29th, the order to attack again went out. General Pershing himself visited the 35th Division's headquarters on the night of the 28th, and he found a disorganized staff and tired soldiers. Pershing did not go up to the front line, although as far as generals went, he was out much more than other equally ranked officers. 0530, just as always, and Major General Traub hid behind the order with the refrain that Pershing said so. General Pershing believed the war was almost over, that the Germans were almost beaten, so the pressure had to be maintained. While Pershing's logic was correct in a sense, he and many of his commanders weren't taking into account the state of their soldiers. He ordered the attack, quote, regardless of cost, unquote. Major General Trobe because he was out walking behind the front lines so he could see and be seen, likely had little or no idea of the state of his division. The men were bone-tired now after three days of heavy combat against a determined enemy. They were disorganized because losses amongst the officers were high and they were starving. Sergeant Triplett and his men were eating German bread and cabbages looted from a captured dugout, and they were the lucky ones. The division had used up all of its combat regiments, and losses had severely thinned the ranks. Officers who went about trying to rouse their men from sleep frequently found themselves trying to shake corpses awake. The order to attack still went out, though, and it was to be obeyed. The objective for the 29th was the village of Exomont and the Bois Boyon on the high ground beyond it. The attack was to go forward, whether the 35th Division's artillery could support it or not. This was now the American version of Offensive à Outrance, which we discussed some during the Verdun episodes. General Pershing had been correct when he wanted the emphasis of training the AEF to remain on rifle marksmanship. That is the skill every soldier in the Army needs to maintain. But this belief that rifles and guts and willpower could overcome any enemy. Well, that was very much disproven in August of 1914, and every month thereafter. The tiny village of Exomont sits in a bowl surrounded by high ground. The Germans had the high ground now on three sides. Major Fred Lemon, commander of 1st Battalion, 140th Infantry, wrote a report for the Advanced Officers' Course at Fort Benning, Georgia in 1923, in which he sharply disagreed with Major General Traub's objectives for that day. Quote, It was not at all necessary to send troops into Exomont on September 29th, Lemon wrote. It is poor policy and bad tactics to send troops into a basin where they can be shot up from the surrounding hills. Maneuver against the enemy positions and the capture of them would have resulted in the taking of the town, unquote. Side note, if you've ever had a rough day in the office, please keep Major 
lemon in mind. During the 140th days in combat, the Major had been shot in the chest. The bullet had impacted on his ribs, shattering several of them, but it had not gone on to perforate his lung. Lemon remained on the job, commanding his battalion, despite what must have been excruciating pain. It must have been tough to ever complain of having a headache or needing a sick day when he was around. The American barrage came down on Exomol and the area around it, and a keen observer would have noted that it was far too inadequate. Brigadier General Lucien Berry, commander of the divisional artillery, had spread his guns far too wide, and as a result, the bombardment that morning was too light to have any devastating effects on the Germans. The barrage, the Germans quickly noticed, left an 800-meter gap between the Doughboys in Bois de Montrebeau and the Americans' idea of where the enemy was. The Germans promptly ran into this gap to avoid the shelling. All of this pointed to the unfortunate fact that the AEF was as yet inexperienced in conducting effective artillery bombardments the way their allies could. Only time could fix that. The whine and impact of incoming shells signaled to the doughboys in Bois de Montrebeau that the attack was on. The men were exhausted, with little or no food and nothing to warm them up. Sergeant Triplett's quote that opened the episode was probably indicative of how many of the men must have felt. Slowly getting up and making some sort of assault formation, the exhausted men of the still intermixed 137th and 139th Infantry Regiments gathered amongst the corpses in the shell-torn trees. Lieutenant Colonel Clad Hamilton, who had suffered a breakdown on the 26th, was back in command of his 137th Infantry. The guns lifted the paltry barrage, and trench whistles called the start of the attack. For several crucial minutes, nothing apparently happened. Then a Major Kallick, a staff officer from division headquarters, personally led a group of doughboys across the open fields and into a ravine west of Exermont. Once the group was settled in there, the Germans, with the advantage of high ground, hosed the ravine with machine gun fire from three directions. Now the men of the 35th began to crack. Too much was being asked of them. From the ravine, Men in ones and twos began running back to the Bois de Montrebeau, despite the heavy fire slamming into them and everywhere around them. Once those men started to retreat, larger groups began breaking for the woods. Major Callock could do nothing to stop them. Eventually, he pulled whoever had remained with him back to Montrebeau as well. As a result of his regiment's utter failure, Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton suffered another breakdown. It was all too much for him, too, and who knows how many of us would have reacted to that extreme situation. The 137th was done and out of the fight. On the division's right, the 138th Infantry was supposed to be the frontline unit that morning. When it was clear the regiment was in a shambles and nowhere near ready to attack Lieutenant Colonel Channing Delaplane was suddenly told 
to bring his 140th Infantry up and get ready to attack. Delaplane was stunned, but recovered and followed orders. The 140th was down to about a thousand men, best as anyone could tell. Supported by Renault tanks, these men now ran out onto the open field south of Exomont and into a firestorm. Sergeant Triplett's platoon was on the left flank of the battalion, covering that side as best as they could. Triplett and all of his men, in a single line extended, only covered 150 yards of ground between all of them. Quote, We were panicked by a horrendous howl, rumble, scream of incoming shells, and our world exploded with a hundred thunderclaps. The battalion to our right disappeared in a cloud of haze, smoke, and flying mud. Fifty yards in front of us, the mud was jumping in fountains. Some batteries of 77s were firing point-blank from somewhere beyond the town. Their flat trajectory shells would strike in front of our line, ricochet, and burst in the air. Real man-killers. We were getting our full share of the ordinary hole-digging shell fire, too, but what chilled us most was that mud fountaining out in front and the shells bouncing to burst practically under our helmet brims. From the way the mud was boiling underfoot, their machine guns were working again, but we couldn't hear the bullets. In that trommel foyer, we couldn't even hear the screeches of the shells. Again, they were mixing gas with the high explosive since the wind was favorable, and some of the men were breathing through their mouthpieces of their masks with the face mask flopping free under their chins. Good idea, but just at the moment I was too worried to bother about a mask. As I saw it, we could continue walking through it and get most of us filleted. We could flatten out, and eventually all hands would be pulverized, or we could run through it and cross bayonets with the jerrys when we were exhausted by our quarter-mile sprint. In spite of being out of my head with the noise, I probably did the right thing, broke it into an extended gallop. I glimpsed Gupton loping along five paces left, and there was Fenster on the right, head down and sprinting. The rest took it up in good shape, and we got beyond the thick of it in a 200-yard dash. Just as I was dreading the last 200 yards of this suicidal performance, there was an old farm lane sunk down a foot running from our left rear to our right front, nearly the same angle as our oblique formation. Perfect. We dived into the cover and tried to get gas-free air into our exhausted lungs. Gupton was nowhere in sight. His luck had run out. Fenster and Canada were still there in good shape. I counted the heads in sight, only 13 or 14 that were visible, over 20 down. There was a big gap between the sections. Looked like the squad from the 138th was completely missing. I suspected that Corporal Offenbacher had done all the fighting he thought was called for by eight cans of goulash and a handful of cookies, but when I crawled over to ask Kennedy about it, he said he'd seen them cleaned out by a shell burst. Newcomb on the other side of him was looking toward the rear with an awestruck expression. <laughs> My God, Sarge, look at what we came through. And just to think, two years ago I let some ape in KC hold me up with a thirty-two. It looked bad, 
Maybe the Jerrys thought we had a lot of power following us up, or maybe their forward observers were slow in telephoning corrections. Anyway, they were still pounding the area we'd come through, hard as ever. The barrage was still pulverizing the battalion area as far as we could see. The battery firing point-blank 77s was still cracking those shells by just overhead, striking behind us, the shells still bouncing and air-bursting. Kennedy had two auto-rifles left. Both of them were yammering away at something down on the left front, out of sight. The hedge 200 yards ahead was hazy with small arm smoke. I looked toward Robbie's section on the right and got my first laugh of the last two days. Old Man Carpenter was crouching alongside his last rifle grenadier, ex Matarista Wright. He was feeding bombs into Tromblon as fast as Wright could shoot, dropping them into the hedge ahead. Wright would piff off his one-pound puffball, and the Jerrys would send us three tons in exchange. It wasn't really funny, just ridiculous. Unquote. The 140th lost some 400 men just crossing that field to get to the shell-shot buildings of Exomont. The tanks had turned back halfway across the field. Reaching the outskirts of the village, Delaplane ran into some men of the 139th Infantry on the south side of a stream. In a rage, the lieutenant colonel and all of the men with him ran into blistering machine gun fire and closed with the German machine gunners laying it out. Once these men were dispatched, the doughboys ran on into Exomont itself. The Americans ran from house to house, tossing in grenades and shooting anyone who stumbled out. The village was cleared, and Delaplane continued to advance with whoever he had with him until he was north of the village. He stopped to look around and saw that of the 1,000 men he started with, he now had six with him. During the rest of the morning, men who had become lost in the melee joined Delaplane and scraped out a shallow trench. Major James Rieger with the remains of his 2nd Battalion, 139th Infantry, joined the men of the 140th in Exomont. The 138th attempted to join the fight, but fell apart trying to get to the little village. Lieutenant Colonel Delaplane and his force were completely exposed to the Germans, who had Exomont surrounded on three sides. The village and the American positions around it now came under concentrated artillery fire. The Germans, having moved somewhat fresh Frontschwein into the battle area, sent them forward in a counterattack. The German troops came on stealthily, bending low to the ground and coming under the roar of their guns. This wasn't a human wave attack. These were groups of veteran soldiers rushing forward in small groups and finding the holes in the American line, of which there were many. By 1 p.m., flashes of Feldgrau uniforms could be seen in and around Exomont and were even probing the northern edge of Bois de Montrebeau. The Americans in and north of Exomont had to go now. Brigade called a retreat to the ridge north of Balny, and whether he knew of this order or not, Lieutenant Colonel Delaplane called a retreat from Exomont himself. The doughboys pulled back, but it was a fighting retreat. They had to move from shell hole to trench to sunken road 
whatever cover they could find. German troops popped up everywhere, and the running battle continued back into Exomont itself once more. Lieutenant Colonel Delaplane was at the rear of his formation, closest to the enemy, and hosing them with fire from a show-shot machine gun himself. His actions motivated his men to keep fighting all the way back over the open field, back through Bois de Montrebeau, and all the way back to Balney Ridge. Dog-faced Delaplane, as his men called him, had taken charge of the situation. From Dr. Langle's book, To Conquer Hell, we get a quote from a doughboy who was with the lieutenant colonel. That new colonel is a fighting son of a bitch, the soldier said. Dogface, they call him. Dogface Delaplane. Now he can shoot, too. Got him a show shot and was right there with the rear guard, all the way back from town. There's a little side note on the Dogface Delaplane nickname, but we'll wait until the end of the episode. The 35th, the 1st Corps, and the American 1st Army had to scramble to find units to man the line. While the 140th largely kept itself together, the 138th had fallen apart on its right and on its left. The 139th slash 137th jumble were also not in good shape. The 35th Division was spent as far as infantry regiments were concerned. There were no reserves left. This was an emergency now, not just for the 35th, but for the whole American army. The Germans were counterattacking in the Argonne, striking back at the 77th Division at Lomort, and at the 28th Division on Les Chentendus, and at Apremont Village in the Air Valley. If they broke through the 35th, everything the Americans had struggled for since the 26th of September would be potentially undone, or worse, they could break through and wreak havoc on the whole Allied general counterattack. Within the 35th Division, the 110th Engineers were the very last unit available, and these men were rushed up to Bolney Ridge to form a line. As the retreating units fought their way backwards to the new line, they passed through the men of the 110th. Some men joined the new line, others kept going. A gaggle of men was gathering at Charpentry, and some of these soldiers refused to head back up to the front. A rumor of further retreat flashed like debt cord through the ranks. Men began to almost stampede towards the rear until one Captain Ralph Truman, intelligence officer for the 140th and cousin of Harry, the future president, stepped in. Standing on high ground, Captain Ralph Truman pulled out his pistol and very firmly informed the gathering mob that he would shoot the next man who tried to break for the rear. It being a critical moment, he wrote later in a field message, I gathered a few of my NCOs and observers about me and stopped about 300 at the point of the gun. The divisional artillery was also sent up, and among them was Captain Harry Truman and his Irish gunners. His guns were leveled to fire flat trajectory using their open sights, which, to my understanding, is a gunner's nightmare. Well to the rear, 1st Corps put the 82nd Division on alert and ordered its 327th Infantry Regiment to start marching to the front to shore up the line. Curiously, 
Major General Traub had been in Balni all morning, but as his division collapsed all around him, he, quote, discreetly departed for points south, unquote, to quote Dr. Langle directly. German observation planes buzzed over the new line, and within minutes, artillery raked the ridge thunderously from one side to the other. The German counterattack came at dusk, with streams of Frenchwein pouring out of the lost Bois de Montrebeau. Frenchwein, meaning front pig, the name German soldiers call themselves. They seemed to be everywhere almost at once, coming at the doughboys from every direction. Fighting became close and personal, and when machine guns and rifles were impractical, then shovels and pickaxes served as weapons. Truman's guns blasted away at the oncoming Germans, adding to the horrific noise. The German attack crested like a wave, however, and as the Americans fought back both desperately and furiously, they began to gain the upper hand. Having taken heavy casualties, the scattered German troops fell back into the darkness of Bois de Montrebeau, and there they stayed. They themselves were disorganized. The 30th of September came, and in the zone of the 35th Division, both the Americans and the Germans sat where they had stopped the previous evening. Behind the 35th's front, 1st Army's artillery assets came up through the traffic jam and set up shop. These guns, once in position, began to pound the German lines relentlessly in order to fix the Germans right where they were. The next morning after that, the 1st of October, veteran doughboys of the 1st Division came in to relieve the men of the 35th. The men of the 35th Division made their way to areas away from the front for rest and refit. For the common doughboy, men like Sergeant Triplett and others like him, they thought they had done their duty and done it to the best of their ability. A lot had been asked of them. Too much, to be honest. They had given up ground, yes, but what other Green Division had done as well, or better than them, in those first days of the offensive? They had advanced some five miles into some of the toughest terrain heavily defended by the Imperial German Army. Like the 92nd Division, their bad reputation began almost as soon as they came away from the Balney Ridge. The bad reputation was cemented in October 1918, when Brigadier General Hugh Drum, Chief of Staff for the AEF First Army, sent Major General Traub a damning report on the 35th and instructed Traub that the complete list of 17 findings should be made public to the doughboys of the division. The first finding of Brigadier General Drum's report was as follows, quote, that the 35th Division at the commencement of operations, September 26th, was not well-trained and fit for battle, was not a well-disciplined combat unit, and that many officers with the division were not well-trained leaders. Unquote. Like the soldiers and officers of the 92nd Buffalo Division, the men of the 35th were shipped off to a quiet sector, 
for the Santa Fe men. It was the nearby Somdieu sector, southeast of Verdun. Here, the 35th sat out the rest of the war. Unlike the officers of the 92nd, no junior officers in the 35th were sentenced to death due to their division's shortcomings. In regards to losses, it took a careful study of casualty numbers and reports in 1921 and 1922 to figure out just how many men had been lost during those five days on the front. The analysis arrived at the figure of 7,300 men lost, with over 1,100 killed and nearly 4,900 wounded. This is high, but it is in keeping with World War I-level casualties. It's what happened. So, why did the 35th Division collapse on the 29th of September? To paraphrase Robert Farrell from his book, Collapse at Meuse-Argonne, the breakdown built up over time, with many factors coming together until they reached the tipping point. Overall, too much had been asked of this Green Division. Then again, though, a lot was asked of all the AEF divisions. General Pershing set the very Green 37th and 79th Divisions to take Montfaucon, which we'll visit a couple of episodes from now. The AEF was working with what they had on hand, and in the summer and autumn of 1918, to put pressure on the retreating Germans, they needed hundreds of thousands of men, whether veteran or raw green. Brigadier General Drum was correct in that the soldiers of the 35th had not been well trained. This, however, was true for just about all of the AEF divisions sent over to fight in France during the Great War. All had been trained for trench warfare, as that was what had dominated the fighting on the Western Front since the end of 1914. However, the training could not possibly keep up with the times. With the beginning of the Kaiserschlacht offensives in March 1918, the war took on a nature of limited maneuver warfare with deep battle zones that could be measured in the dozens of kilometers. Pershing's emphasis on rifle marksmanship had a point, although we should also point out that his objectives for his divisions were unrealistic. The training was poor, and the first tour of the trenches was an unrealistic experience in the quiet sector of the Vosges Mountains. But this was because all veteran Allied troop formations were desperately needed at the front to contain those German offensives from March onwards. Then, once the tide turned, the AEF needed all the men it could get to begin its offensives as part of the Allied general counterattack. A big factor in the division's performance was Major General Traub's sacking and replacing of primarily National Guard regimental and brigade commanders just days before the big offensive began. New, and in a couple of cases incapable, regular and National Army officers took command, and years of unit cohesion between longtime commanders and their men disappeared instantly. It takes time to build solid working relationships where a leader comes into his own. 
Whether the National Guard leaders were as professional as their regular army counterparts could be a side topic of discussion, but the fact was that those regiment and brigade commanders were well known to their men and were accepted as commanders. The soldiers of the Federalized 35th Division followed their National Guard leaders not only because they were ordered to do so, but because they also wanted to. That matters in leadership. Traub's leadership, and the lack of it, was a critical factor in the division's failure. Blindly obeying General Pershing's edict that all officers must literally lead from the front, Traub was out of his headquarters and thus largely unable to be reached when he was most needed. His lead-by-walking-around style left him unable to make decisions and participate in the battle as it unfolded. And when he ordered his headquarters staff to do the same as him, they too were made unavailable. The division's combat regiments were left to operate independently, which they eventually began doing. The lack of leadership combined with the rigid adherence to General Pershing's orders to attack regardless of cost led to costly local attacks. The horrific traffic jam behind First Army's front line led to critical shortages of food, ammunition, and artillery support. The strain of heavy combat operations wore the men out, and it all added up to the point where on the 29th, some were ignoring their battlefield commanders and running for the rear. It was too much, so the division broke. Seeing and recognizing the points where the 35th Division fell short or failed has made me think back on my own time in the service and how the U.S. Army works today. I am happy to say that it has come a very long way from the leadership of those days in World War I. And it was through painful lessons such as these that the Army has very much improved. Okay, last thing, that Dogface Delaplane story. The nickname came from the Colonel's features, and he does have a tough look of the bulldog on his face. Delaplane loved the nickname, and he loved the reputation that came with it. He'd earned it at Exomont, for sure. In February of 1919, he would be stopped by a sentry late one evening, and after he was told to halt, advance, and be recognized, Delaplane counter-challenged the young doughboy. Don't you know who I am, soldier? Uh, yes, sir. Who am I? Colonel Delaplane, sir. Wrong. I'm dog-faced Delaplane, and the toughest son of a bitch in the U.S. Army. And I'm a lieutenant colonel. Yes, sir. All right, soldier. Who am I? You are Lieutenant Colonel Dogface Delaplane and the toughest son of a bitch in the U.S. Army, sir. That account comes to us from the notes in Triplet's memoir, A Youth in the Meurs Argonne. Okay, so we'll leave the 35th there. Next up, we're heading over to the Wild West. Questions, comments, or concerns... Please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or get at me on the Twitter at at 
www.podcast. Check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook and definitely check out the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.